Turn with me now in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read from Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 30. This will provide a little bit of context for our sermon passage, which is Psalm 70. This is the first Lord's Day of the month, and so we'll look at the Psalm of the month, which is Psalm 70. And we'll turn there, Psalm 70, in just a moment. But first, let's look at Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 30. Hear now the word of the Lord. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from bondage, from the bondage of corruption, into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Amen. I don't know how many of you have reached this stage in life, but there comes a point where your morning routine includes groaning. The groaning of trying to get out of bed. The groaning of trying to get to work on time and with a willing heart. The groaning of having to deal with the same old sins and the same old selfishness that you are long since fed up with. Well, if you wake up and you groan, you're in good company. The Apostle Paul says that the creation itself groans. Jesus is said in John chapter 11 to see the grave of Lazarus and to groan. But this word is not a word of complaint or of griping. No, to groan in the Greek is to express deep internal anger. Jesus saw Lazarus' grave And he was angry because he is the creator of life and 
death had come. And the creation was made by God to live. And death had come. And why are we groaning every day? Because death is coming. He who made life and we who were made to live groan in the presence of death. We are angry. This is not the way it should be. We shouldn't have to say goodbye. We shouldn't have to feel death at work in our bodies and in our hearts. But Paul also says that our groaning has a hope. It has a purpose. When we groan with Jesus, when we groan with creation, we awaken hope. The hope that makes us willing to wait. The hope that gives us patience. The hope that one day these three will all come together. Jesus, creation, and us. And when all three are together, there will be no groaning. And there will be no death. With that in mind, turn back to Psalm 70. Our psalm of the month is Psalm 70. This is because I have been your installed pastor for 70 months. And we've done one psalm a month for 70 months. So Psalm 70. This one is brief. But you all know, having sat through 69 of these, that the length of the psalm is not at all correlated to the length of my sermon. Psalm 70. Let's read again the word of the Lord. To the chief musician, the psalm of David, to bring to remembrance. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. Make haste to help me, O Lord. Let them be ashamed and confounded who seek my life. Let them be turned back and confused who desire my hurt. Let them be turned back because of their shame who say, Aha, aha. Let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. And let those who love your salvation say continually, Let God be magnified. But I am poor and needy. Make haste to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. Amen. And amen. Way back in the dark ages, before cell phones, my classmates and I would get home from a sporting event in the twilight. The school bus would go around the back of the school, drop us off near the gym, and we would all line up to use the payphone. Now, there were a few lucky kids who had some extraordinary parents who would actually come early and sit in the parking lot and wait for the school bus to roll in. They just went straight to their parents' car and got to go home and eat. The rest of us would stand in line and wait one by one by one to use the payphone to call home, and hopefully mom and dad would answer. If they didn't, you left a message, which hopefully they checked. Eventually, you would end up going inside the locker room, putting away your gear, taking a shower, getting dressed, and eventually, at least one or two of you would end up standing beneath the stars Wondering how long it would take to walk home. Wondering if you broke into the cafeteria, there would be anything worth eating. Wondering what it would be like to sleep 
in the gym and get up the next morning and go to class. Inevitably, mom and dad would show up, usually no more than 10 or 15 minutes late. It just, as a teenage boy, felt like an eternity because you were hungry and you were tired. This dissonance between how much time passes and how it feels to us is a common experience. Einstein wasn't wholly wrong when he said time is relative. In this regard, Psalm 70 speaks to us who as believers hear Jesus say, I am coming quickly. And we go, 2,000 years and counting. What do you call quick? We who are running out of patience, we who want God to hurry, this is a psalm for us. We who wonder if God has forgotten what's happening down here, this is a psalm for us. David has written a psalm to remind us, to teach us, that God never forgets. And that if we know that truth, if that good news is embedded in our hearts, then we are willing and able to ask Him to hurry up. We are willing and able to pray, hasten Lord, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's look at the psalm together. Notice in the subtitle, those little italics across the top of the psalm, verse 1 in the Hebrew text, The psalm is addressed to the chief musician. As many of you have heard many times, this phrase refers to the public nature of the psalm. This psalm is a psalm of David. He is perhaps the author. He is perhaps the editor. He is certainly the royal authority by which it appears in the public hymn book of the church. David, as king and head of Israel authorized the use of Psalm 70 in temple worship in his day, tabernacle worship. And so David directs it to the chief musician, the choir master, the one who of the Levites was responsible to make sure that the worship of God included this psalm. Now we have David as a type and shadow. David is for us a picture of Jesus. Jesus, as king and head of the church, has through the inspiration of His Holy Spirit put Psalm 70 in our Bibles so that the chief musician might know this is something we should sing. This is something we should read. This is something we should pray. Today's chief musician might look like Eric. Later on, he's going to look like Maggie, I understand. But in either case, it's actually Jesus. We are led into worship by Jesus. He is the type and shadow of Jesus. David is the type and shadow of Jesus. He is the full reality of the royal head. It's his psalm. And he's given it to us that we might sing it with him. That we might follow him into one specific and particular religious activity. Remembrance. In the New King James it says, In order to bring to remembrance. In the ESV it says to accompany the memorial offering. Whatever the reference is that David has in mind, the reality is that David has in mind being mindful of something. He wants us to remember 
that God always remembers. There is an important religious reality that when Noah was in the ark, surrounded by floodwaters that had destroyed the entire earth, it says the Lord remembered Noah. And when Abraham and Sarah were so old beyond help, the Lord remembered Abraham. And when Israel was down in Egypt in bondage and slavery and cried out and groaned under the weight of their curse, the Lord remembered Israel. You see, your God does not forget. Your God knows right where you are. It is a stunning and humbling reality that I preach to faces I don't know. I preach to lies I do not fully understand. I preach messages of truth and of encouragement and of conviction, not knowing if they will hit the mark, not knowing where the mark is in your heart and in your mind. So when the barb finds its target, it is God who has done it. You see, God knows. He knows what you need to hear this morning. He knows you needed Psalm 70. Whatever kind of week you've had, whatever kind of week is upcoming, today you need Psalm 70. And here you go. It is so that you can remember your God will not forget. By the way, in a fantastic, we can't call it coincidence, Jesus did it on purpose. There is one other thing that he gave us other than Psalm 70 that is intentionally intended to exercise remembrance. Do this in remembrance of me. We have a supper that we celebrate in order to remember our God has not forgotten us. So if we are going to remember the memory of God and that he is with us and will take care of us, we need to begin, according to verse 1, by asking God to hurry up. Now, isn't that surprising? You get yourself into a situation... And you don't want to be in it. You bear patiently with it for a long time, knowing that there's no need to be hasty. And your patience runs out. You come to the end of your rope. Your tank is empty. You're fed up. Whatever metaphor you want to use. You've burned all your matches. That's a cycling metaphor. And you have nothing left to give. And David says that the next best step is to turn to God and say, Will you hurry up? Does that not sound impious? Does that not sound incredibly disrespectful? Your timeline and God's timeline are not synchronized. He's taking his sweet time and you're kind of fed up dealing with it. And David says, well, tell him that. There's a fascinating structure to verse 1. It begins with reference to God. It ends with reference to the Lord. The divine name appears at the beginning and the end. Inside of those is two verbs of what David wants from God. Deliver and help. In the very middle of it is the one and only petition. Make haste. Hurry up to deliver. Hurry up. And save and help. 
By structuring it this way, David points us the direction of his piety, his reverence for God. By saying at the beginning and the end the divine name, David points out that he is relinquishing his right to control. He is turning to God in a disavow of his own ability. By saying, O God, O Lord, David is acknowledging that there is a divinity that he needs. He can't do it in his humanity. Secondly, by saying deliver and help, David is saying, I can't solve the problem. I cannot escape the problem. David's plea, hurry up, Lord, is not improper because David has at last grasped his inability to do anything about it. As he has entered deeply into his own incompetence, his own disability, his own weakness and frailty, David has grasped the greater and greater weight of his need for God, his dependence on God. This is the nature of this start to the psalm, that we should discover with David how deeply we need God and how graciously he treats us in our need. There is no one in the history of humanity who has ever gone to Jesus for pity and not gotten it. There is no one who has ever gone to God for compassion and not received it. When we grasp how deeply we need God and we say, hurry up, He hurries. Isn't that stunning? Now, The rest of the psalm, as you might expect, trains us to not be selfish with this request. Because we think, oh, hurry up and get me out of here. But that's not what David is praying for, as you're about to find out. Let us, with David, learn to pray, Lord, hurry up, deliver me, help me, come to me quickly. But let's do it in a reverent and pious way. Now, David supplies three specific petitions we can pray about our problems in order to pray, hurry up, in a reverent and pious way. In verses 2 and 3, he says, Let them be ashamed and confounded who seek my life. Let them be turned back and confused who desire my hurt. Let them be turned back because of their shame who say, Aha, aha. In these three sequences, these three petitions, David points us to the source of his problem. He has people in his life who are seeking for his life. There are would-be murderers in his presence. There is someone or multiple someones who want him dead. This seems like a problem, yes? You could think of the King Saul who twice in his own palace, while David is playing beautiful music for the calming of his soul, grabs a spear and tries to make him into a pincushion against the wall. Saul is someone in David's life who wants him dead. Saul, who twice will chase David into the wilderness in order to kill him there. David also has people in his life who desire his hurt. Those who want to steal his crown like his own son Absalom, who chases him away from the comforts of his palace, 
who runs him out of the seat of power in Jerusalem in an attempt to dethrone him and to destroy his life. But of course, David also has in his life those who say, Aha! He has Shimei, the Benjaminite, who when David flees from Absalom, throws dirt and rocks at him and hurls curses upon him and slanders him. David is a man who lives in a world that doesn't love him, who is surrounded by people who either want him dead or harmed, or at least want to gloat and celebrate when he experiences these things. All of these together would make David want to say, hurry up, Lord, hurry up, get me out of here, deliver me. This is our experience, is it not? That we live in a world where the persecuted church, for instance, has many who seek their life. The persecuted church the world over have many who desire their hurt, who would kill them, who would arrest them, who would ban them from jobs, and many who would say happily of Christians, Aha! I got you. You are my prey. But it's not just the persecuted church the world over, is it? We have these problems here in our world. We have these problems, although in the West, in America, they're often just spiritual. But that's because we don't take very seriously sometimes the spiritual nature. Do you know that your sins want to kill you? Do you know that your sins want to hurt you? Do you know that you live in a world that delights to say, aha, do you see that hypocrite? Do you live with a conscience that constantly seeks to destroy you? Do you live with temptations that constantly overwhelm you? Do we not live in this world with David where we say, hurry up, Lord. I'm tired of the sin, and I'm tired of the sorrow, and I know Westminster calls it the estate of sin and misery. Can you leave it to somebody else? I don't want to live in sin and misery anymore. Do you ever get fed up with this world and your experience of it? Do you ever get fed up of your own life and how you're living it and making a hot mess of it? Is this not our experience in the world? David has prayers that answer these problems. Let them be ashamed and confounded. Let them be turned back and confused. Let them be turned back because of their shame. There are really three ideas here that David is focusing on, though there are three couplets. The words are shame, confusion, and reverse. David, first of all, wants his foes who seek his life ashamed. By this he means embarrassed by their lack of success. I want them to come up empty-handed. Father, please, hurry up and make sure that those who are seeking my life don't find it and are unable to secure it. Father, confuse them. Let them be bewildered at what is happening, that they think they have me, aha, but they don't. Let them be ashamed, disappointed, unable to achieve their intended outcome, unable to achieve their desire. They can't hurt. They can't take life. Let them be disappointed and ultimately reverse, turned back. By turned back, he means changing course. 
perhaps repenting, no longer desiring my hurt, no longer seeking my life. He might also just simply mean leaving him alone. Again, if we revisit the life of David, we see that King Saul came to him in the wilderness, 1 Samuel 24 and 26. And when Saul came to David in the wilderness, all these things happened to him. He sought David's life, he desired his hurt, and he was waiting with eager expectation to say, Aha, I have David at last. The first time in the cave of Adullam, David shows up the next morning with a corner of Saul's robe. And Saul has to publicly admit to his own shame, David, you are more righteous than I. You deserve the crown. I do not. He must face the confusion that when he was seeking the life of David to kill him, his life was put into the hand of David. And David didn't take it. How confusing is that? Saul himself asks, who does that? And so what's Saul do? He goes home. What happens when Saul camps on the hill of Hekelah, east of Jeshurun? Again, his life is in the hand of David, and David's armor bearer says, let me drive a spear through his temple just like Jael did before. He'll never feel a thing. And David says, no way. Take his spear, the symbol of his royal authority, and take his water jug, the symbol of his life. David walks away holding them. The next morning he calls out. And to Saul's shame he says again. I held your life in my hands. I held your royal authority in my hands. Here is the spear. The symbol of your kingship. Here is the water jug. The symbol of your life. Send a servant over. I give them back to you. To Saul's shame and to Saul's confusion. He goes home with life and kingdom intact. Unable to stop David. And Saul himself has to conclude. David, you're going to rule and do great things. The Lord is with you. David has seen this prayer worked out in his life. Have you seen this prayer worked out in your life? Have have you looked upon those things that are eating away at your life? Those sins and sorrows and temptations and, yes, aging itself. And have you seen the power of Jesus Christ to turn them around and to thwart them? To bring them to shame and confusion? To make them realize there is no gain here? God is with him. He remembered, by reviewing this history, he remembered My God did not forget me in the dark of the cave of Adullam. And my God did not forget me that night on the hill of Hakalah, east of Jeshimim. My God did not forget me. And and you know what? David is a type and shadow of Christ. Who can say, I hung on the cross and I said, my God, my God, why have you forgotten me? But then I said, into his hands I commit my spirit. Because God had not forgotten him. He laid in the grave for three days. And said, why do I have to be here for three days? But his God did not forget him. Our Jesus can sing this psalm with us and for us. Praying, hurry up Lord, Sunday can't come quick enough. 
Saturday in the grave is miserable, but Sunday in the garden is glorious. And all of death and Satan are shamed, confused, and turned back. This is how we learn to pray. But David, having these three prayer requests for his enemies, that they would experience the intervention of God, that they would experience God preserving his life, God keeping him from hurt, God keeping him from shame. He then has two requests for his friends. Verse 4, let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let all those who love your salvation say continually, let God be magnified. By this, David prays for those who are not seeking his life. See the comparison? There are those around him in verse 2 who seek his life, but there are those around him in verse 4 who seek for God. And he says, those who are on my side, who are not seeking to kill me, but are seeking to know God with me, who are seeking to know God through me, those who want to see God in my life, let them rejoice and be glad in you. Let them see you in me. Let them see you in my life. Let them see God appear in me. Those who are seeking God with David, let them look at David and go, yes, God is with him. He is blessed. Secondly, he says, let those who love your salvation say, God is great. God is magnified. Let him be worshipped. Let a heart of worship enter the chest of everyone who loves to see God work salvation for the life of David. Let all my friends who with me seek God, who with me worship God, be glad. And say, yes, God is with David. Yes, God is here. Yes, God has blessed David. By this we proceed. There is a greater presence in the psalm. David is a type and shadow of Christ. How much more can Jesus pray these words? That he who in John's gospel said, if you know me, you know the Father. No one comes to the Father except through me. May we rejoice and be glad who realize that if we are to seek God, we are to seek him in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And there we find him. And there we rejoice and are glad. The word of God, both in flesh and in page, gives us God. This is why I love preaching. I love preaching because I love words. And these are the best words humans have ever had. I love preaching because I love the word. And when we talk about these words, we are talking about the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. Is this not joy? Is this not gladness for us? That when I open my Bible, I get Jesus. Not information about Jesus, though that's in there. Not just Feelings about Jesus, although I can get those when I do read my Bible. But I can get Jesus. The man himself. The God-man himself. That when I seek God, he's to be found. I pray, Lord, hurry up. I'm tired of sin. I'm tired of sickness. 
I'm tired of sorrow. Will you come down and deal with all these things? Ah, I gave it away. David is praying, will you come down? David isn't praying, get me out of sickness. David isn't praying, get me out of sin. David isn't praying, get me out of sorrow. David is praying, you, we are seeking you. Come to us. Let them rejoice and be glad who seek you, who seek you in the person and work of Jesus Christ, those who love your salvation. I've made this point many times. What's the Hebrew word for salvation? Yeshua or Joshua. If you put it into Aramaic, it's Jesus. We could translate this. Let those who love Jesus say continually, God is great. Let those who know Jesus, who love Jesus, who desire not the hurt of King David, but the presence of the true David, even Jesus. Let those who love him and who desire him continually find expression of the greatness of God in him. Why is our God so small? Because we find him in everything but Jesus. And when you stare at the person and work of Jesus Christ, and you find how awesome he is and the wonders he has done, you end up with the conclusion, wow, my God is great. The gods we imagine God to be are really tiny. The gods we sometimes wish God to be are really tiny. But the God who is God, who has made himself known in his son Jesus Christ, is a great and awesome God. And when we continually see him, and when we continually find him in Jesus, we say, that's a great God. That is a great and awesome God. David, with these three petitions for his enemies, has prepared himself for the joy of finding God in Christ. With these two petitions for his friends, has brought his companions into that joy and gladness of knowing God in Christ. David now has saved one petition for himself in verse 5. But I... But I am poor and needy. The but puts us in contrast to the three petitions for the enemies and the two petitions for the friends. Even as the enemies are experiencing shame, confusion, and reverse. Even as the friends are experiencing joy and gladness and salvation and worship. What is David alone experiencing? Poverty and need. And in this way, David is the most perfect type and shadow of Jesus. Who one day, this has already been described in the adult Sabbath school class, embraced poverty. He was born in obscurity, in a crowded house, where he slept with the animals in the basement. Because it was warm there. He had need. He had hunger. And I know the song, No Crying He Makes, but it's not true. He cried like a newborn baby. He hungered. He thirsted. He went into the wilderness and went 40 days and 40 nights in the temptation of Satan without physical sustenance. 
He was poor and he was needy. And he went to the cross naked and ashamed, confused. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he hung there bleeding till he died, poor and needy. Why is Jesus reduced to poverty and need? Why is Jesus shamed and confused and hanging on the cross? Because, friends, we can't have verse 4 unless he has verse 5. We who by nature are poor and needy can look to a Savior who by grace accepted poverty and need for you. And we who by nature are children of wrath can through his grace be children of the living God and say, make haste, Father, hurry up and help me. Do not delay. Hurry up, Father, do not delay. You are my help and my deliverer. I want to read this verse again just briefly without the verbs because they're not in the original Hebrew, although they are clearly implied in the Hebrew. But listen to the sound of the poetry that David is using. But I, poor and needy, make haste to me, God. You, my help and my deliverer. Lord, do not delay. Do you hear and feel the impact as those pronouns Stand out. I, poor and needy, you, help and deliverer. You see, what we must remember is the contrast and relationship we have with God. He is help. He is deliverer. We are poor and needy. He has helped. He has delivered by reversing our conditions. He became poor and needy in order to be our help and our deliverer. He went through the experience of Psalm 70, our experience, the experience of sin and misery, the experience of feeling forgotten, the experience of running out of patience and wanting to be done with the whole thing, crying out in the garden, Father, let this cup pass from me. He knows what it's like. To want to be done, to be poor and needy, so that he can teach us what it's like to wait. The last piece of the psalm that I want us to grasp is its place in history. I've already pointed out how it bounces from David to Jesus, but here's the thing that I want us to remember it bounces from Jesus to us. You see, David in all of this psalm is crying out. Hurry up, Lord, come to me. Hurry up, Lord, get over here. We need you down here. He is praying for the incarnation. He is praying that God would come in the flesh. So why do we still sing it? Can't we just put it away as fulfilled? Why do we still sing it? Has not the incarnation happened once for all? God became man and dwelt among us? John chapter 1, kids are memorizing that, right? Verses 1 through 14, if you're in the teen class. Has he not come? Why do we still pray Psalm 70? 
Clearly, we still experience Psalm 70. We still feel forgotten. We still struggle with sin and sorrow and the coming of death. Well, we turn over to the book of Revelation at the very end. And what is the last prayer left on the lips of the people of God at the very end of the Bible? Maranatha. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Yes, he has come. But he's coming again. This is why we wait. Because he's coming again. Praise God he's come. God never forgets. He has come. He is coming. He will come again. So let's pray. Hurry up. So let's pray. Hasten, Lord. Come join us. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this promise in the heart of David, born by the inspiration of the Spirit, that he, out of sin and sorrow, should look forward to the coming of the Christ and pray with urgency, Oh, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And so teach us who have seen that you remember your promises and indeed sent Jesus into the world, that we too might learn to pray with David, come again and quickly, Lord Jesus. Hasten to our help, Father. Hasten to us this day and this week. And we pray with the ancient church. We pray with David himself. We pray with John and Patmos. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen.